Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? I am okay, man. We are recording this episode, um, I don't know if you know this, but on Mental Health Awareness Day, I believe, uh, October 10th, due to come out in a couple of days. You won't hear it for, for a day or two, depending on the, the efforts of old Jack Mills over there on the production duties. But um, with that in mind, I've got to be honest, Paul, I don't come into this episode full of the joys of the season but what always gives me a lift around this time or any other time if, of any given week is recording this show and talking about films with you so I throw it back <laughs> at you how, how are you doing this week? I'm great I've just come back off holiday uh, I've just been to Paris for a few days which is very nice um, no complaints there to be honest uh, and found a, a little bit of a gem actually for anyone who is going to Paris or wants something new to do in Paris there's a film museum in Paris Pete did you know this was here? Um, I had. I think, you know what? When I went to Paris uh, last year, which is the only time I've been there as an adult, um, I was aware that there was, and I just didn't have the time to go. How, okay. how was that? It was very cool, to be honest. I mean, the first time we went, it was supposed to be open. It was closed, mildly frustrating. But when we did get in, the second time we went, I had a great time. There's lots of old sort of kinetoscopes um, and this kind of thing. So it goes way back to the sort of early, very early cinema. So you've got a lot of old projectors of old cameras and that kind of that kind of stuff like zoetropes and that kind of thing which is which is very very cool um so that stuff's enjoyable there was a really nice exhibition about exhibit about the film metropolis which was great um talking about kind of like the golden era of hollywood how sam was inventing that kind of stuff so it's it's nice to see something that's kind of for i would say the more sort of hardcore cinephile then it doesn't really cover blockbusters and that kind of thing it just covers like this this sort of the older the older sort of classic period of cinema uh but i would say by far the coolest thing in there um and it is on my i'll put it on the strangers instagram actually because i'd put it on mine because uh, i'm still learning instagram i'm getting old so i get confused over to which account i'm using uh so but yeah so they've got the the head the mother's head uh the original prop used in the hitchcock film psycho which was very exciting to see that and i was just like i kind of want to take that with me and i did take photos and i wasn't supposed to take photos so i sneaked some photos um so the photos you see there yeah i wasn't supposed to take but no it was great it was really cool really cool experience they were doing um there's a cinema screen in there as well which we didn't get to go to because we just didn't have the time but they were doing uh some pretty interesting looking retrospectives it was a nicholas ray retrospective james gray retrospective so uh my wife said to me she was like i imagine if you lived in paris you'd spend a lot of time where we just went i was just like correct i would have done so yeah no paris was very cool uh but yeah the film museum was also very cool so if you haven't been to paris um it is worth a visit it's only five euros to get in you'll probably be around in about an hour um depending on how nerdy you are about these things but yes well worth well worth a look if you're a film fan and in paris so yes uh i'm very well I'm, (laughs) i'm glad you i'm glad you made that specific about your recommending the actual film museum in paris because for a minute it seemed like we were doing the credit section and we'd gone up in the world to the point where you were saying well i recommend the european city of paris yes (laughs) that is my uh, credit for this week but yeah i mean by all means get yourself down paris if you've got the the spare change and it sounds like if you are able to go there if you're lucky enough to go there then the museum is well worth a uh, yeah for sure for sure So what we usually do at this time in this show is we have a section called In the Foyer in which we discuss film news, news from the world of film. And then we get on to the rest of the show, which is going to be tentpoled this week by a big old review of Joker, which I think is in all of the 
sort of film related news headlines and discussion on, on mental Twitter health so awareness forth. day as well we get to talk about joker exactly. that should be interesting yes <laughs> it, it couldn't have lined up more perfectly could it paul um so yeah we'll come on to that in due course we've also got today a top five um we've been bringing them back of late the top five this week will tie in with joker in so much as we're going to count down the top five outsiders so we're talking like people on the fringes of society people maybe f- struggling to fit in or find their place or maybe with people with no desire to fit in just you know forging their own course in life um so we'll come on to that as i say in due course but first of all we are in the foyer and we want to talk about film news paul what has been happening in the world of film as far as you know this last week i know you've been very busy so it's difficult to keep up sometimes uh, yes, is the short answer to that. Um, yeah, so there's been a couple of bits of news I wanted to discuss. Um, firstly, uh, Ang Lee has been talking. A Gemini Man comes out um, this week, which we'll get to in a minute in, in coming attractions. Um, so a bit of news that took me by surprise. I wasn't aware of this until I saw an interview with Ang Lee. He's filmed Gemini Man uh, once again in high frame rate in 120 frames per second, um, which apparently Billy Lynn's halftime walk was filmed in, which is a film I've never seen. Um, this It's always fascinating for me when filmmakers work with new technology or even though I don't necessarily like it. Similar to what you were saying, I guess, with 4D and D-Boxy in the other week. Like, I, I did I did see The Hobbit when that came out in high frame rate, and I'll be honest, I hated it. It looked to me like they left the motion smooth, that someone had left the motion yeah. smoothing settings on a TV. Yeah, I remember and that. And it really, really took me completely out of it. But Ang Lee is adamant in the interview I read with him that this is the way forward, uh, and certain scenes look a lot more realistic. And he wanted to... I think he's he made some reference to he wanted to... Um, get the fight scenes in Gemini Man looking as close to kind of like um, compelled sort of fight scenes on uh, YouTube, um, spontaneous fight scenes on YouTube. That's what he kind of wanted it to look like. And he's he's adamant it's the way to watch the film. He's adamant it looks more realistic. And uh, I, I think the 3D, I mean, there are, if I remember rightly from Hobbit, the 3D does work a lot better in high frame rate. And that, so that could be interesting. So this will be the first film, I'm going to go and see it this weekend, in high frame rate in 3D. It'll be the first time I've watched a film in 3D for ages because I'm not a huge fan of that either. But I'm very intrigued to see whether it's improved or not from The Hobbit because I think The Hobbit was 48 frames per second and this is 100 and something. What did I say? 150 frames a second, I think. So this is even faster shutter speed. So I'm, in, I'm intrigued, shall we say. I don't think I'll enjoy it. I don't think it will be for me, but I'm certainly intrigued to see, um, to see another film shot like this because I've always liked Hang Lee's visuals. So we'll see where we end up. Yeah, and for for all of that uh, visual spectacle, you get to see Will Smith not once but twice yeah. all over this movie, <laughs> yeah. judging by the the trailer and the general gist that I get from this movie. I mean, so, I, I, yeah. I, I'm not excited for the film, I'll be honest, but I'm more excited about the, the technical aspect of it. So Yeah, to- totally agree with you on that, man. Like, it's one of those that, that seems like it's just sort of arrived and maybe it's arrived with fairly um, little fanfare, Gemini Man, and maybe that's an in- indicator of the fact that it isn't going to do, you know, gangbusters at the box office Mm. but like you said the interesting takeaway might be how the technology plays into the presentation of the movie and the fact that Ang Lee is a guy that I think we both have have, um, enjoyed uh, work wise (laughs) not personally over the years Um, we've got in front of me Paul another story from this week which is that our pal Alfonso Cauron has inked, as they say in news headlines, an overall TV deal with the company Apple that you may have heard of. <laughs> um, this is because Apple are rolling out Apple TV Plus, their own um, streaming, premium streaming service to keep up with the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime and so on and so forth. Uh, Cauron apparently set to earn seven figures on this deal, so it says here. Uh, whether that's going to be, you know, 
his production company rather than him personally remains to be seen. But this ties him down over multiple years. It could be up to, I think, five years um, of televisual projects developed for that platform. I mean, when you hear a story like this about a director that I think you, you have a lot of fondness for, what, what what's your first reaction, Paul? Just, I'm, I'm just a little bit sad, to be honest. I mean, like... It's great that he keeps working. It's great that he's getting a budget to maybe do what he wants. I can't see that he's going to be able to get to do what he wants in a company that's notoriously controlling as Apple. And I know for a fact that Apple TV Plus service is going to be very, very, very middle of the road because they maybe not middle of the road, maybe that's the wrong word, but I don't think they'll take any risks with it because it's Apple. Um, so I can't see us seeing any edgy material from Calron coming out of this service. And ultimately, if people keep launching streaming services, no one will have any of them. So in this cool time on streaming services and get the ones working that we've got at the moment, I think is where I stand on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the other way to look at it, I guess, rather than... Cool time on new streaming services. Yeah, rather than no one will have any of them is that, like, everybody will have one or two of them, but the whole industry um, is going to be fragmented in that sense because people are only going to have access to the, you know, funneled productions of the one or two that they sign up for because with the best one in the world, Paul, I mean, we're both massive film fans, obviously, doing the show as we do, but you cannot like without limit just keep subscribing to every new service you have to have some control you know when the fun stops stop as they say these days well no you're absolutely right because there was someone in the and i I, apologies listeners if i've mentioned this in a previous episode there was someone in a paper read the other day that if you of all the streaming services that are launching over the next 12 months by the end of 2020, they would if you subscribe to all of them, they would have cost you £1,400 a year. <laughs> yeah, and that'll be a creeper, won't it? Because it'll be one of it'll yeah. be one of you or me going like, mate, you realise I've I've actually spent £1,400 this year on streaming services yeah. because you know, I, and you've watched one one series on each. Service. I remember. I'm sure you've had this discussion too. I had a, a, a conversation with a John, a mutual friend of ours, John Gagan, um, and he said, you know, how many streaming services do you have? Do you have many and I was like first of all very blasé like oh no no not really like, I've got a couple I've got Netflix of course I've got Amazon Prime I've got movie and then as I started going down the list I was like no that is quite <laughs> a lot though isn't it that's just suddenly become part of my regular outgoings and, and life so yeah I mean back to topic um, Calron is a director that I like a great deal I guess I sort of shrug at this news because I think I'm not going to get Apple Plus ever uh, or Apple TV Plus I should say and um, I just hope that it doesn't curtail the work that he's able to do uh, you know on the bigger screen and, and in terms of uh, yeah I'm, I'm I'm with you back yeah back on topic for sure I can't I can't see that he's going to produce his most exciting work under the Apple TV plus umbrella is my concern yeah and to be clear this is a Esperanto Filmoy I believe as how you pronounce it his production company um so there will obviously be a number of people in, in including yeah. like um, creative collaborators who are going to be involved in this project so uh, in these projects plural so it's not as if this is Calron is suddenly making TV shows and they're all on no. Apple Plus TV. No, that isn't the case. So, um, yeah, reasons to remain, you know, relatively hopeful on the Alfonso Calron front. Anything else, Paul, news-wise? Uh, yeah, some news that initially... Uh, it's the kind of news that when you, you start reading the paragraph, and I was just like... And this is something I read on Empire Empire Magazine's website uh, earlier, earlier in the week. 
I started reading the news and I was just like, oh, a female fronted John Wick spinoff is going to be filming. I was just like, ah, this is quite exciting. Uh, this is going to be called The Ballerina. I don't think any casting's been done yet. But this was my concern about the fact that when, when I talked about John Wick 3 on the show, I was quite disappointed that the series didn't end because I thought at some point there's going to be a dip in quality of this series. And if it's going to happen, it's going to be with this spinoff, The Ballerina, because the director they've attached to this, Pete, is none other than everyone's favourite jobbing, horrible action filmmaker, Len fucking Wiseman, is directing a John Wick spin-off. Um, and I don't like Len Wiseman as a director at all. His Total Recall remake was awful. Die Hard 4 was terrible. The Underworld films, I, some people like the first one. I hated those. It just he's, he's like a Paul Tom, not Paul Thomas Anderson, a Paul W.S. Anderson um, in terms of the colour of his filmmaking. I don't think Len Wiseman should be let anywhere near the John Wick franchise. Um, so that for that reason, this news has not excited me. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel you on that. I mean, yeah, you look down the the hit list of uh, Len Wiseman joints, and you hardly get you know flustered with the idea of him taking <laughs> on a, a big project like this. I mean, other than Wiseman being attached, I don't think we've got much in terms of details on Ballerina. No, I think it's very it's very recently been announced. Um, but if, I mean, I've yeah, got I've got this: a young female assassin seeks revenge against the people who killed her family. So yeah, a very John Wicky type uh, story synopsis for for this one. But um, other than that, yeah, details thin on the ground at, at this point. Um, other than we've got a writer, um, see if I can find anything. Shay Hatton is the, the writer of the project. But yeah, like you said, Paul, you know, cool that we get a spin-off of John Wick, I suppose. Although I think I was a bit less keen as the series went on, uh, on the John Wick movies, perhaps. Um, but yeah, directors mean something to these kinds of movies, don't they? And and I'm not too sure that this means anything too good. And I, I think part of the reason part of the reason John Wick works is that it's directed. I mean, it was originally co-directed by David Leitch and Chad Stowalski. Mm. I think that's his name. Um, and David Leitch obviously had a bit more legs and helped him out. And then Chad Stowalski's now been directing them, but he was a stuntman. So this is what works about these films. And this is why the fight scenes are so well handled, because the director um, is, from a, is from a physical stunt background. So I think if you take these films away from them and start giving them to jobbing directors, um, you know, whatever you think of Len Wiseman... Uh, he's not you know he's not a former stuntman as far as i'm aware so i just can't see the physicality of these films being able to be recreated by other directors i think they work well because they're handled by one guy who was a very talented stuntman so there, we'll there is an obvious question that comes to mind though um, i should say shay hatton by the way the screenwriter is the uh, person who wrote the screenplay for john wick three parabellum which in my opinion is the weakest okay. of the three but i mean yeah we'll see um the, the question that came to my mind is is kate beckinsale going to be in this because obviously if the underworld series you know uh, being where she was starring as with len wiseman who is her husband as director uh i just wonder whether there's going to be a role for beckinsale in this one i wouldn't imagine as like a lead character perhaps but we'll see yeah it would surprise me if she wasn't i mean age way. didn't hold uh, keanu reeves back any when it came to the john wick uh, trilogy no. right so yeah <laughs> no. equal opportunities i would say and uh, i'm all for that part of this information if if Kate Beckinsale's involved, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, we will see on that one. So that brings us to the end of uh, this section in the foyer for today. Now, usually at this point,
point, we would jump into the regular next section of the show, which is called Popcorn Movies, where we review in a sort of short form movies that have come out in the last week. However, both of us have been a little bit busy. I got a little bit of an obsession going with watching stand-up comedy specials instead of movies and then uh, TV shows when the stand-up had finished. Uh, (laughs) Paul has got very, very busy at work. So what we've decided to do today is jump over that section and jump straight into coming attractions, which will be previews of upcoming films for this week to get all excited about. That will be right after this. So yeah, back we are with coming attractions. Popcorn movies will return next week when we've watched some films. Also, not just busy at work. I've been True story. Day, so yeah, I'm going to yeah, give yeah. myself of that course. excuse. So yeah, um, I'm going to give myself that. I'm going to give myself that excuse. I think. Um, yeah. So popcorn movies will be back next week, as I've just said. Um, yeah, coming attractions. Pete uh, basically does the, all the hard work on this, and I just give to get to give pithy answers. So uh, Pete, what have we got? Uh, what have we got well, coming? Well, first out? of all, I should <laughs> suppose it would make sense to go to one that we've mentioned already. And so out this week, wide is Gemini Man starring Will Smith alongside Will Smith uh, an action drama sci-fi movie Uh, an over-the-hill hitman faces off against a younger clone of himself hence the double casting of the same man now um, this one is directed of course by Ang Lee as Paul mentioned before we went to the break Um, and we have got so far pretty middling to low uh, early reviews from critics on Gemini Man. Now, Paul, you mentioned before the jump this idea that the high frame rate, um, is that across the board or is that just in some screenings of Gemini Man? I believe, well, I it, if your cinema's projectors sure. support it, then it should be across the board. And I, I know Odin at Bath, uh, I, li- I love Odin at Bath, I think it's fine. It's not a particularly high-end cinema, so I'd be very surprised if, if like, there's, there's what I'm getting is there's much bigger Odeons than, like, than my local Odeon. So if my local Odeon share it in high frame rate, I imagine most places will be, as long as they've got compatible projectors. So we've got so, that, yeah, we've um, got that little, um, you know, uh, enticement, I guess, to check this thing out. In addition, you've got an actress that I like, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, co-starring alongside Will Smith in this uh, an actor that I don't particularly like in Clive Owen um, and then a cast of supporting actors <laughs> uh, including Benedict Wong and others I mean yeah I don't know this seems like one of those sort of minor blockbusters that that you know tends to be um, quick, quite quickly forgotten about and I think that's kind of the the impression that I'm getting from your side in terms of your anticipation too Paul is that fair? Yeah, I just, I just, I mean, if it it might be better than Double Impact, which had two Jean Claude Van Dams, but I, I don't know. Uh, in in all honesty, it just the the premise doesn't excite me. I don't think the film looks particularly well written or very good, and it just this feels to me like a like a action film ripped straight from the nineties and not yeah, in a good right. way. Um, in terms of how it looks, I don't, I don't know. They just, I just, I don't think it looks great. Um, and maybe that means maybe that means I'll go and have a good time with it because my expectations are, are so low. But yeah. we shall see. But yeah, not. Particularly I think that's a good shout. One, like the, even the 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 poster art kind of reminds me of something you might yeah. pick up on the shelf at Blockbusters back in the day and be like, oh, Will Smith, <laughs> I like him. This might be all right. Not heard of it before. Um, yeah. So that maybe doesn't bode too well for Gemini Man. Um, also out this week we have the animated comedy family film, The Adams Family, or at least the latest. Att- 
attempt at um, bringing the Adams family to the screen. Um, Paul, anticipation levels here. Are you an Adams family guy at all? Yeah, I, I watched the films when I was a kid. I'll be honest. I'm, I'd be intrigued to rewatch them now, but I haven't. I haven't rushed out to see any of them lately. Um, this feels to me like a bit of an easy cash in for an animation studio just to go. I know what we'll do. We'll rehash the Adams family and make a CGI animation out of it. Is it a CGI animation? Before I before I jump it, on that bandwagon, it looks a kind of um, Tim Burtony kind of uh, animation style. Um, but uh yeah yeah kind of 3d cg effort anyway i mean i guess uh, with these things it's uh, de rigueur at this point but you've got a pretty starry voice talent cast uh, from gomez played by oscar isaac we've got morticia is charlie's theron we've got uh wednesday adams played by chloe grace moret uh your boy finn wolfart from uh, stranger things is in here as pugsley nick kroll plays uncle fester and then as it we've got snoop dog so um yeah all, all kinds of I'm on varying board voice talent I'm on board. So, i don't know man it seems like it might be a good time it's the kind of movie that i'll almost certainly see because my wife's going to be down with this for sure um and so i guess thoughts to follow on whether this thing works or doesn't doesn't work um and we've got to reserve judgment and give things a fair crack i suppose yeah absolutely absolutely um what else this week so we've got another one here in front of me a thriller called the dead center um, a 2018 release, but not getting a release until now. Uh, make of that what you will. From director Billy Senezi. Uh This one tells the story of a hospital psychiatrist's own sanity uh, being pushed to the edge when a frightened amnesiac patient insists that he has died and brought something terrible back from the other side. Uh, this is one of those that I think is going to be on a fairly limited release, if not available on a streaming platform near you quite soon. Now, there's basically one reason <laughs> why I brought this to attention, I would say, Paul. And that is because the lead male role in this is occupied by one Shane Carruth. And at this point, I'm so desperate for the next Shane Carruth directorial project that just seeing the guy on screen proves to me that he's still alive and well and, and getting on with things. Um, how how are you set in terms of what I've just told you about this movie? movie well based on the i mean i've not heard of this film at all i'll be honest based on the premise i was just like mm, not sure and then if shane caruth's attached to it in some way i mean he might be he may be that he's just trying to earn some money to make his next film um or it might be that it's more interesting than the premise kind of lets on so yeah um 50 in 50 percent interest yeah he's, he's not he's not a daft man i'm not saying that everything that he's attached no. himself to is is fantastic but um yeah, I mean, it seems one worth worth uh, checking out at some point just to uh, to find out what what the what compelled someone as smart and and switched on a Shane yeah. Ruth to get involved. I suppose. Um, yes, uh, and I guess that's about all we've got on that one. Last of all, out this week as well is a film that I've managed to see on a preview screening already, but I am keeping tight lipped until next week's feature review on this show, and that is the new one from uh, why well, let's say now director Chris Morris. Uh, the day shall come. This is the uh, political satire um, satirizing the way in which the FBI finds uh, sort of. It's, the premise of this film is insane. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the, the movie opens, and not to spoil anything, the movie opens with the line uh, based on 100 true stories, which Morris explains is not 100 specific true stories. It's more the idea that he's done so much research into cases very similar to this and all elements in this case or many elements in these ca this case depicted in the film. So the, so the, premise, is, the premise is that the FBI are 
setting up people to be terrorists or encouraging people to come up with fictional terrorist schemes or plots and then arresting them for terrorism kind charges. of that, have i read understood kind that right that yeah it effectively ends up being that it starts out as being more like right. um they're looking for small groups of like dissidents or rebels or activists who seem to be organizing something in some way that can then be sort of um propped up by fbi support and funding uh, and then okay. ensnared right. um, in a kind of entrapment situation and held up as an example of the growing terrorist threat against the united states and elsewhere so uh yeah interesting to know that this is uh, co-written by jesse armstrong who of course has been involved in everything from like the thick of it through to peep show through to loads of great british comedy yeah. stuff and of course chris morris is this guy who made his name with the day-to-day and brass eye and uh, blue jam and all that stuff back in the day which has made him this figure of sort of legendary status amongst uh, UK comedy fans I think and maybe comedy fans at, at large so there's a lot of anticipation for his next film it's been what a full decade since near enough a full decade I think since Four Lions his last uh, directorial outing as a feature director so I mean your anticipation for this must be fairly high I'd imagine Paul I would say, yeah it's it's off the off the scale I would say to be fair I love Chris Morris I'm one of those who do regard him as a legend Brass Eye is for me one of the fun it still remains one of the funniest things I've ever seen um, and Four Lines was fantastic so I'd be very intrigued to see very excited to see this one and uh, um, yeah I can see you struggling to keep Sturm so we'll move yeah. on yeah uh, I think it's a good idea <laughs> only so. to say that um, yeah for, for better or worse uh, Anna Kendrick is uh, maybe the, the biggest name in the movie and then Kay Van Novak of course returning to work with Chris Morris having worked on Four Lines as well um, and a strong cast I would say fairly, fairly strong cast across the board so yeah more on this next week when we come to like I say a full feature review of The Day Shall Come. The Day Shall Come for that review Paul and it is not today. However we will be back in just a moment with what you have all been waiting for I'm sure our full-hearted opinions on this week's feature film and that film is Joker. Talking about that will be Paul and myself right after this. So yeah, back we are with the um, well, in uh, unarguably probably one of the year's most controversial releases so far in terms of the impact it's had on the media, in terms of the reviews it's had being going from anything from five stars to a masterpiece to kind of one or two stars. I think Peter Bradshaw ended up describing it as the most disappointing film of the year. So yeah, this is Joker, directed by Todd Phillips, um, who you will be more, probably more familiar with from the Hangover films. Um, old school and a lot of tasteless but sometimes amusing comedies um pete set this set the premise up sure. what's the premise of the film i mean most people will probably know this is joaquin phoenix playing the batman villain the joker but where's where's so what we're story seeing, are we seeing not the origin story of the joker as a man who fell into a vat of acid and then went mad as a result what we're seeing or a vat of chemicals i should say what we're seeing here is a reworking of the joker origin story as this guy who is mentally troubled and marginalized within society um he is a wannabe sort of up and coming late in life stand-up comedian who's trying to make ends meet by working as a jobbing clown going out and 
putting a smile on people's face, putting a happy face on people uh, through what he perceives to be the skills that he has as a clown. Um, Arthur is, yeah, as I say, disregarded, marginalised, on the fringes of society. He's also spending his evenings tending for his sick mother, um, all the while dreaming that he can make it as a stand-up comedian and have success and acknowledgement within a society that seems to have turned its back on him. More on the film right after we hear a little clip. I have some bad news for you. This is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. So yeah, if, if from what you were setting up, Pete, this sounds to me like well, I know I know the tone of the film. This takes a different, I would say, a markedly different approach to a superhero or supervillain film in the way that we've seen them of late. This skews, I would say, certainly even darker than something like Nolan's Dark Knight series. Um, and yeah, and I think you know it takes takes a takes a different approach to it. Um, do you think where where do we start with this? To be fair, should we start with Raccoon Phoenix? Should we start I, with... I want to start. I maybe I want to start with this, which is just a a, a sort of um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? A precursor to actually talking about the film, I guess. Which is that Todd Phillips, the director of the movie, has stated that the Joker, as existent in this movie, the Joker um, or Joker, we should say, is not connected with anything in the DCEU, including the 2021 to be released, uh, The Batman, with Robert Pattinson in the lead role. He says, um, and maybe this is a jumping off point later for talking about Todd Phillips as a director, but he says, this is just a movie. So it's not supposed to connect with any of the other things in the DCU. We're not going to see tie-ins in the future as far as Phillips is concerned. So this is to be taken as a standalone study of a character who happens to be connected to the DCU, but he isn't connected to the DCU. Just so we're all straight on that, right? And, and, and from there, yeah, I suppose yeah. my first question is, Paul, <laughs> why does this movie exist? Like, from your point of view, does this movie need to exist? Or was this all a bit of um, self-indulgent kind of hubris from the people involved? If this, I mean, I, I'm sorry to say, I don't believe a word of what's come out of Philip's mouth there. If this film makes money uh, and Joaquin Phoenix proves as popular as he's proving to be, then why would they not bring him back and use him in the Batman film? Um, like, and... They, he says there's no link to it. There's there's so many references and so there's some majorly overt references to the rest of the DCEU here as well. So I'm not buying into that, to be honest, that it, this will be a standalone film. Joaquin Phoenix has said he's keen to play the character again, I think, in an early interview earlier this week. So, yeah, and I think ultimately... Sorry, I've drifted off the question, to be honest. So the question was, does this film need to exist? Does it need to exist? Is there a reason that this was made? Because when we saw, I mean, we talked about it on the show, when we saw the news that this was going to be a thing, we were kind of like um, interested in where it would go and how it would end up uh, coming to life, I suppose. But I think both of us had a, a bit of a reluctance and, and a bit of, of a question in our minds about, you know, why do we need a movie about the Joker now with all that we've had in recent years in terms of Batman content where the Joker has been a character at least on the periphery if not you know close to the center of those plots and so do you feel having seen the movie that there was indeed a reason to make the movie uh yeah I guess so I think I, I mean yeah I, I think so um is is the honest answer to that question I think in terms of if they're trying to kind of, it feels to me like they're trying to salvage something out of the disaster that was Suicide Squad and Batman versus Superman. 
and the the DCEU films um, that were trying to build a shared universe. I think they're trying to salvage something like that and kind of redefine. And much as Todd Phillips claims not, they're trying. To, I think they're trying to redefine the Joker as a character they can use again, um, because ultimately these films are about making money. Um, so yeah. In that regard, yeah, I guess for me it works in terms of rebooting a character. I hated Gerard Leto's interpretation of it and loved Heath Ledger's. So this, yeah, I think just just about for me this justifies its own existence in terms of trying to in trying in terms of trying to reboot the universe, um, which he claims he's not yeah, doing. Yeah, quite. <laughs> I and and I are. suppose yeah, <laughs> I you disagree. can dig a little bit here because the budget for this movie was just in inverted commas fifty five million dollars, which is a fraction. It's fair to say of a mainline DC movie or for that matter a Marvel movie at, at this level. Yeah. So it feels like a bit of a punt on on. Uh, the part of the studio with trying out this kind of super serious grounded almost um, uh, yeah like realist uh, imagining of the life of a marginal figure that's that's exactly this exactly it's 100% exactly what this is because the, the concern is then is that okay so there's not many films that are getting made with that kind of budget at the moment there always seem to be the mega budget or tv series if you know what i mean there doesn't seem to be anyone taking a punt on character studies that cost around about the 30 to 50 million mark which i think is a bit of a shame there seems to be let, like i'm th- sort of like wind river and those kind of films like they're, they're few and far between um so the my concern with something like this is then we just now get we get those people spending money on those films again but they're all about comic book characters so there's even less variety in cinema as much as i you know i'm a fan of the joker character don't get me wrong, but this is a, a concern. Um, but it's a, basically, a, you're absolutely right, Pete. It's a pump to see if these kind of low, well, the, the, yeah, they are comparatively low budget films work in I think, audiences. I think we've got to go so, with the yeah. term mid budget because otherwise I'm going to feel a little bit sick. <laughs> with 55 yeah. million bucks on the table <laughs> yeah, fair but yeah, yeah it's right yeah it's right I think yeah. that's the case and and so from that point you know we have this for, for better or worse we have this sort of um, fairly self-serious character study of this guy on the fringe of society I mean I guess one thing that came to mind watching this movie and obviously we'll get into characters and performances and stuff like that but one thing that struck me is like why then, with all this distancing from the rest of the DCU stuff, why then does this even need to be, other than the obvious answer to the question, money, why does this need to be named Joker? Why does this character need to be the Joker? Could this not just be a movie about a guy on the fringe of society who ends up having slightly dangerous, quote-unquote, revolutionary ideas, uh, rather than like just just barnacling off this juggernaut of of success and financial you know gain in order to tell a story that is told i think quite a lot better elsewhere i mean the the uh, influences that people have been going on and on about around this are things like uh, well tenuously i guess raging bull king of comedy of course um, and taxi driver quite quite obviously um where did you stand did you feel like you could feel scorsese fingerprints on the movie paul did you feel like it suffered for that or do you think that they did anything like a reasonable job of telling this character's story to be honest i i would have rather i kind of i think we were saying last week i kind of i'd have rather either loved this or Mm. hated it and i'll be honest pete i came out massively nonplussed by this film i just i I, I I really like Joaquin, Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix's performance, as I thought I would do. I think he's fantastic here, and I don't dislike some of what he's done with the character. But there's so much of this film that just felt, for me, run of the mill. There was there was no subtlety to this film 
at all. And I, I've read other people review and go, oh, the score was fantastic. It wasn't. It was too much. It was just like, okay, oh, something bad's going to happen now because there's such there's such sort of heavy portent to the whole thing. There's just this big weight. It's just like, okay, I get that this is dark material, Todd Phillips. I understand this is a dark film. I know this. There's no need to constantly ram it down my throat. So I struggled with it. And I don't think he is a, a strong enough director to deal with this kind of material. I just I don't think he is. If you look at his, his previous backlog of work, he's not... He's clearly trying to be Scorsese here, without a shadow of a doubt, but he's not Scorsese. Not many people are. Um, so that's kind of my my first of the problems with it. The other problems I have is with the is with the character arc. So um, I sorry by the end of the film, I don't buy that he's become that basically this kind of this this lonely, uh, unwell outsider who is socially awkward and struggle and certainly struggles to deal with life generally um sudden and there's a sudden there seems to be a sudden turn in the film where he's suddenly a criminal mastermind and I don't I didn't buy that I didn't buy that character arc as good as the performance was I didn't buy the turn in the character that happens in in probably the film's highlight which is a set wave piece a set piece in the subway um that set piece for me was great but I just didn't I didn't buy the character arc here and I just the whole film for me thought felt very heavy-handed and for me at times just felt it was trying too hard to be edgy and dark yeah i mean i i don't know if like criminal mastermind might be a bit strong because doesn't he kind of fall into it in the sense that in the sense Mm. that you know he he has this ambition to get on television we should say of course that he's getting on television to be on a show presented by boom tish robert de niro um and when he finally gets that opportunity is when uh, he has another dramatic moment that I can't spoil, but brought to mind at least one, if not two, uh, quite popular satirical movies about news production. Um, yeah, I don't want to spoil the movie. I mean, I guess there are people who haven't seen it so far. But for me, it was like, uh, what you said was absolutely right. Like, it, it felt very portentous. It felt like very sure that what this was was sort of grand and meaningful and zeitgeisty and kind of capturing yeah. something essential about the way in which we live nowadays and the way in which we marginalise people and how people have to be heard. But, like, at the end of all of that, you kind of shrug and think, like, well, what have you added to that dialogue? What What's the takeaway from this movie other than marginalized people are marginalized dangerous people are dangerous i mean i'm not too sure and it's when you hear all this stuff about phoenix shed 52 pounds for the movie Uh, obviously we had the win at venice film festival the golden lion win for the film which gives it this kind of um grandeur that maybe people weren't expecting of something related at least tangentially to dcu um and then yeah just the sense that you were watching something that believed itself to be very important uh but I, I was kind of searching for what it was that that was, and I'm not sure that I found it. I mean, something that I, when I was talking about this with someone else earlier on, I said this kind of summed up the movie for me, is um, Arthur Fleck's character is constantly scrawling in a notebook. It's supposed to be a joke book, but it's also where, like, the the scribblings of a sort of dangerous mind are, uh, you know, uh, all over each page and doodles and that kind of thing. And he's written there, and the camera goes back to it two or three times in the movie, the line... I hope uh, my death makes more sense than my life. And sense is spelled C-E-N-T-S. And like that kind of eye-rolly, edgelordy shite is just like the sort of thing where I think, you know, <laughs> that's that's what this is. Like, 
he's what what do you expect from the director of the hangover though that's what i mean that, that's the kind of stuff that todd phillips does and, to, and for me so, sometimes it works in the hangover it worked for me not so much in the sequels this is what top, todd phillips does he's not a subtle director and this kind of material for me to take it seriously and for it to be any good needs a deft hand and phillips doesn't have it i'm, I'm totally with you here like it doesn't have it. And also for me, I know a lot of this, the, I think a, a slight inspiration was the killing joke in which I believe um, in which the Joker is mentally ill. But for me to make the Joker mentally ill just seemed lazy. Like I re- what I loved about Heath Ledger's version in the dark, in Nolan's universe is that I don't feel that that character was mentally ill. I just think he was who he was. He was just a sociopath. I don't, I don't think he was necessarily ill. And the fact that he didn't have a backstory made him this incredible force of nature and that I enjoyed all the more, I think. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, I feel like maybe the killing joke, the killing joke is, I, I believe, 30 years old. I, I may be wrong. I'm holding my hands up if I am. I'm sure people will crucify me for it. But that you know, are we re- is this really the best we can do with a Joker origins film? Is oh, he's mentally ill, like that. It just felt quite lazy, to be honest. Yeah, and and just this kind of outsider who can't take the constraints of his life and snaps makes you again think of better movies. Think of Falling Down, or even uh, God Bless America, or like uh, all number of just more in. Or Taxi yeah, Driver, yeah, yeah. or I mean, yeah, but like, like what I'm saying is not even going back. When we touchstone on things like Raging Bull or Taxi Driver or whatever, you say, you know, okay, mm. those things are beyond reproach to a certain degree. But then, like, you don't even have to go back that far no. to see films that do a I similar mean, thing. We need but, to talk about Kevin, like, yeah, films that I don't yeah. even think work particularly well, but are, <laughs> are maybe better or, or more interesting than than this one. And yeah, I mean, okay stop for a second so good things about the movie or things worth mentioning in this review before we seem like we're just sort of shitting on it and steamrolling over it um yes he lost 52 pounds that isn't oscar worthy on his own there is a sort of um reptilian physicality to Joaquin phoenix like you were saying you liked his performance i like the fact that the his body and his sort of movement worked to add something to the character the way his sort of um spot like the bones the nubs on his spine stick out when he's all hunched over you know those things were powerful some of the scene setting i think worked reasonably well in terms of um you know framing shots albeit briefly exteriors and that kind of thing i know todd phillips is very pleased with himself for the way in which he's managed to get kind of period detail into those shots um there there were sort of things to like about the movie as it set itself up I think the biggest issue I have is the way in which it ends up playing out, having set itself up to be this kind of dark, brooding um, world. Um, there's not a lot of payoff, to be fair. No, that's that's, that's a fair point. And I think for me, the, the, the biggest disappointment, I, I didn't, I'm sounding like I hated it. I didn't hate the film. I was just so nonplussed by it. And I, I don't understand where where all this hype's come from. I don't understand like this instant... I mean, if there's a term that I hate more than anything, that's a film poster, it's the term instant classic because there's no such thing, but that's a whole other episode. We can do a whole episode on quotes on movie posters. But I, I don't understand why this film seems to have been put on the pedestal it's been put on because, as you've said, Pete... There are much better films like this that aren't that aren't featuring Joker, that aren't featuring a comic book character, and that's it. Doesn't matter that it is featuring a comic book character. They are just much better films about these kind of characters than this film, and I don't understand the hype at all. And this, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, if I tried to, I could take a few fairly conceited, irritating 
points of view, I guess, which I don't, I'm not saying I, I sort of <laughs> completely uh, uh, ascribe to any of them, but like you could argue that a bulk, a bulk, an amount, some of the um, f- fervent like fandom for this movie comes from a set of fans who consume an awful lot of mainline comic book movies i was going um, to say the same thing but thought better of it but yes i agree yeah i, I don't mind being I, <laughs> yeah. I don't mind being the sacrificial lamb for this opinion you know uh that that maybe once you root something in a world that seems more like the real world um let's say and once you involve issues like a slightly muddied complicated psychology and and darkness and that kind of thing then um yeah, to them, that feels like a, a towering cinematic achievement or a narrative a dramatic achievement. And and I, you know, I have some sympathy for that point of view. I just kind of wish that that maybe the, the bar was a little bit higher for what was going to achieve this this level of acclaim. But like, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, when people are saying that he should get an Oscar nomination and or win for this performance, I mean, if he's nominated as best actor for the Oscars, I mean, so be it. I think it's a good performance. I just think it sits in a film that is a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a shrug and i mean something okay i said the thing about uh death more value more sense than life yeah. or whatever that that little joke um there's also this joke that he uses when he's on stage right when uh arthur fleck stands up on stage as a stand-up comedian he says the when i was a child i told my friends and everybody in my family that i wanted to be a stand-up comedian they'd all laugh at me nobody's laughing now and i as soon as i heard that joke i thought i know that joke it's an old joke. It's a Bob Monkhouse joke. I looked <laughs> really? up this this reference and it says in the IMDb notes on the movie, uh, the trivia on the movie, it says the joke was inspired by Bob Monkhouse. No, it wasn't. The joke was stolen, taken and repurposed from Bob Monkhouse to this movie. But like, yeah, the, the edgelord crew who are, who are, you know, some of, not all of the fan base for, for Joker uh, it's a little bit funny to me that that their guy is uh, spouting secondhand Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the stand-up comedy thing, I would say shouts to Gary Gulman, who to me was uh, the biggest smile that I had throughout the movie. It's not particularly fun, uh, quite dark, but when I really did beam was when Gary Gulman. Uh, popped up as a club comedian when uh, Flex in the Comedy Club. Gary Gulman is this stand-up comedian who is fantastic. Check him out. He does loads of great stuff on the the economy post-2008 and Trump, and he does a whole bit on uh, grotesque wealth. And it didn't pass me by that someone in the casting agency might be aware (laughs) that Gary Gulman is also a guy with a storied history of huge struggle with mental health. And I would argue maybe a much more interesting character study than that of Arthur Fleck in the movie. But that's, you know, for other people to decide. But yeah, please check out Gary Gulman's stand-up if you don't get anything else from this review other than the fact that we don't totally love joker um paul anything else to add on this one uh zaze beats is in it as well isn't she or Bates, or however we say yeah her, which her is her. great because she's a fantastic actress she's great in atlanta and it was nice to see her here but yeah it, again it's this it's it's just for me it's just not a film that's as good or as clever as it thinks it is by quite a long margin to be honest it, i mean the zaze beats scenes there's a spoiler coming here the zaze beats scenes where it looks like half a fleck maybe dating zaze beats and then shock horror she isn't there. He was hallucinating the whole time. It's just like, come on. 
Like if you didn't see that at the time and you need you just need to watch more films. Like I'm sorry, you know, I'm dude, sorry, I'm gonna say what? it. If you loved this movie and think it's that good, you need to watch more films. Like, you know you know where there's a movie, man, where there's a guy who might see things that aren't there and is an outsider and has feelings that go against the, the grain in terms of capitalist sort of rampant consumerism. You know when that was a movie, Paul? Twenty years ago, the film Fight Club came out. Yeah. Like throughout <laughs> this i was thinking like well this is a tyler durden bit isn't it like yeah so so it's that sense of it being sort of a bit moldy as well like the material being a bit sort of yeah reused seen, and rehashed. seen this all before and done better yeah and, and i mean again to maybe maybe then you know repurposing a bob monkhouse joke is a is a good way to sum up the the achievements of the movie because you're expecting something that that's really going for the jugular and like making some point and like oh a lot of people want to read this through the lens of the Arthur Fleck character being a sort of um, cipher for Donald Trump and you know an idiot you know uh, ringleader for the masses or whatever but like I think that's overcrediting the film I think that that here there are a collection of ideas a lot of them repurposed a lot of them reused a lot of them you know secondhand and um, then they are presented through the lens of better film directors and uh, better uh, storytellers, let's say. And what you have at the end of it is a sort of facsimile of a really great movie, but it isn't a great movie, is it? No, no, I think you've, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. I didn't, and again, I, I want to be at pains to say, I didn't hate this film. I thought a bit, there is, there's bits to like. Some of the set pieces are good. It looks nice enough. And Phoenix's performance is great. But yes, this feels like, uh, almost like almost like a, a greatest hits film of bits picked from better films um, put into this to make to make Todd Phillips um, Joker movie uh, for sure. Yeah, I've got to ask you just whilst we're still on uh, DC EU stuff, how is your or what is your feeling about um, Robert Pattinson playing Batman in twenty twenty one? I think if anyone can do it, he's, he'll do a good job. Matt Reeves, I'm not wasn't that struck on either of his Planet of the Apes films, although they seem to be critically loved. I like them. Um yeah, maybe I like maybe them. I need to give them another go. Maybe they caught maybe they caught me on a bad day, I don't know. But I'm I'm quietly hopeful for Bat- for the Batman to be honest. Um but I but then again I'm torn because as far as I'm concerned, I've got Batman Begins and Dark Knight. So I'm almost happy with those Batman films. But I want to watch a Batman mm. film I'll just go and watch those. So we'll see. We'll see. I think it's yeah, the right man, people I, involved. I'm with you. Like if they said yeah we we've sort of penciled in Patterson uh, Pattinson and it's coming out in 2024 or something I'd be cool with that because I feel like you need a little breather from Batman related stuff as much as I enjoy those movies and the trilogy and, and so on and so forth and the earlier movies too but yeah I, I don't know it might be a little bit um, overkill at this point and you know if Joaquin Phoenix is indeed to play the Joker again is that something that you are you know Jones in for anticipating yeah I mean I think I think that would be I think he'd be a good foil to Robert Pattinson as Batman I think and you know certain things happen in Joker that they claim to be unrelated to it which means they could do that quite easily I'd be I'd be more than on board for Joaquin Phoenix playing playing Joker again in another film um for sure I think he he did a damn sight better job than Jared Leto did in Suicide Squad so (laughs) yeah and I and I would say like you know 
Joaquin Phoenix is an actor I like. I don't think I love him quite as much as a, a lot of people maybe do. But if you're looking for the, um, you know, oh, Joaquin Phoenix has been in this movie where he enacts violent um, acts against uh, the people that wrong him or, or get in his way without really giving any vocalization to the reasons for doing those things. Uh, you Were Never Really Here was a movie like two years ago. So maybe go check that out uh, when... It's you know, a much, you, you... much, much better film than Joker. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even a film I particularly liked, but I now look back on it a little bit more fondly when, when Joaquin is getting praised to the hills with all this stuff related to the Joker. So yeah, uh, we, I'm sure, will cycle back at some point to discuss this movie as the months roll on. But for now, I think we can close the lid on joker uh, and get on with our lives probably not before though paul we are going to tie in to that feature there our own top five for this week and the top five that we've got is a bit of a doozy so much so that i could, was trying to whittle down 25 <laughs> movies to just five uh, that's because we are going to run down the top five movie outsiders right after this So yeah, these are characters that, as Pete, I think, mentioned early on the top of the show, these are characters that are kind of on the fringes, that are loners, whether they whether they are choose to be by choice or ostracised by society. Um, so we've got a top five. Um, Pete, my number five is The Joker, but not Joker, The Joker from Dark Knight, uh, Heath Ledger's version of The Joker. I kind of alluded to why I picked him in the earlier review, so apologies if there's repetition here. But yeah, for the me, Heath Ledger's Joker works incredibly well because I said I don't think he's insane, I just think he is who he is. And I think it's uh, Michael Caine's quote where he just says, some men just want to watch the world burn. And like, there's so many good moments, like when, when, um, when the Joker sets fire to the money and burns all of the money. It's just an incredible moment. You're just like, no, this guy is just like, he just wants, he's just a fucking, he's just an asshole, basically. Like, he just wants to toy with people. And and I liked the, the ambiguity of him. I liked the fact that, it, I liked the, I really liked the fact that, um, and I can't remember how the writing process came about. Every time he's told the story about his scars, he told a different story. There was an air of mystery as to where this guy's come from. Like, he's just a force of nature that's come from somewhere. And then, and then, you know, through great tragedy, we haven't seen Heath Ledger's version of the Joker again, which I think is a good thing in a way, because it means we'll always have just this one incredible performance in this one film. So, yeah, for me, number five is Heath Ledger's take on the Joker character. Yeah, it's a, it's a timely pick, given yeah. what we've just been <laughs> yes. talking about yeah. with the... Uh other movie um so at number five for me like i said i mean i could have gone so many ways like you too i'm sure paul with uh, this list but for number five i had to pick something that just came to mind straight away and it is um you know i i true to type i've picked a documentary as my number five uh, <laughs> this one is from 2011 the movie's called dreams of a life um, I remember talking about this on the show for some reason it came up. Maybe it was on another list. It's a documentary from uh, Carol Morley, a kind of esteemed filmmaker. Um, and the star of the movie is Zoe Ashton, who has been in all sorts of things um, of late. What was the one with the, the painting and Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Paul? Velvet Buzzsaw. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> so look at that, look at that, it's right on it. Uh, yes, so that's somewhere you might know her from, I suppose. Here she is excellent. And what the filmmaker sets out to do is tell the life of a person, real person, called Joyce Vincent, who died in her bedsit in North London in 2003. The reason why the filmmaker was drawn to this story is it was um, it became a, a national news story because the body of this young woman wasn't found for three years. Um, she, when she was found, she was surrounded by birthday presents that hadn't been opened or delivered. Um, the story's absolutely about an outsider because it's about this person who, although she managed to have a sort of a effervescent, active social life in terms of going out for those engagements that we all know about, where you go meet people for a, a gathering, a birthday, drink, some kind of leaving do... Within that, she slipped through the net in terms of like not having steady, ongoing, supportive friends or a network like so many people, I think, in modern society do. And so what her death tells us, I think, is so much about life and the life that we increasingly lead as individuals in a sort of late capitalist world where so many people leave those gatherings, leave those drinks, leave those parties and go home if they're not lucky enough to be in a you know loving relationship or a family unit, they go home to maybe a, a small apartment where they live and exist alone. And this person, as I said, was not discovered for three years because none of these quote unquote friends knew her closely enough or cared about her existence enough to actually go there and check how she was and keep up to date and ask questions. And I think in uh, on the day that we're talking about, you know, men mental, health mental health awareness in 2019, this kind of story is increasingly prescient that people, no matter how outwardly confident, happy, bubbly they might seem, could be suffering, could be going through uh, real, real difficult times in their private life and need people to reach out and need people to give a shit and show up and, and stay in touch. So yeah, Dreams of a Life, very much an outsider story, very much a tragic story, but maybe one that we can learn something from yeah, um, in terms of how we relate to one another. So that's my number five, Dreams of a Life from 2011. What has made number four? Number four for me is um, the main character from one of my absolute favourite films of all time and a film that just topped the Guardian's list of the greatest film of the 21st century, I believe. This is Daniel Plainview uh, from the, again, the film There Will Be Blood, um, played by incredibly well by an arguably never better Daniel Day-Lewis, who is clearly having... Uh, a great time um, in the role of the, I'd say tyrannical would be a fair a fair word for uh, Daniel Plainview's yeah. character in this film, um, who um, who is a man who is singularly driven um, towards by purely I would say almost by greed, um, without a shadow of a doubt, at the expense of his own son, at the expense of people around him. Um, it's a scene. It's a scene. It's absolutely scenery chewing performance in an absolutely impeccable film. Um, and like some of the lines he comes out with the milkshake, the milkshake memes ultimately should never go away. They should never die. Um, and yeah, it's for me, it's just an incredible character that um, unfortunately is probably still probably still a fairly accurate, accurate representation of a lot of capitalists today. Um, so despite the film being set in the past, it still resonates, um, still resonates a lot. And that's a lot of that is down to the, the Daniel Plainview character for sure. 
Pete, any thoughts on Plainview? Or yeah, my my thought on that movie that the the line that for me most comes to mind when I think of Daniel Plainview in that movie is him saying, uh, "Why don't I own this?" Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and all that you're saying about yeah, capitalists of today, I think, can be seen in in the man who yeah. who simply cannot comprehend why he doesn't own more stuff that he. And can I think see. there's moments as well where he tries to buy more land for the um for the oil line, and he has no idea why they won't sell the land to him. Like it just just doesn't doesn't comprehend it yeah it's a brilliant yeah it's a brilliant mirror to um the the dark aspects of our society for sure oh good segue here uh so at number four for me the dark aspects of our society in this case the dark dark aspects in black and white glorious black and white from 1998 this one is maximilian cohen from i knew Darren this was going to be on your list I knew yeah, it. <laughs> the, the Darren Aronofsky movie Pi, uh, written and directed by Aronofsky. Uh, this one hit me hard when I was a young man. So I would have seen it soon after release, probably about 16 years old or 17 years old, something like that. And you've got this character who lives, again, a little bit like in my first pick, Dreams of a Life, someone who lives alone in a small apartment, getting on with their own things away from the prying eyes of other people. In this case, Max Cohen is obsessed with the way in which mathematics and its patterns can be seen in the external world and are everywhere and in that way exist in all things, including the stock market that can be used if uh, understood correctly to predict changes in the stock market and lead to uh, future gain and also um, understanding of the world all around us. Um, yeah, again, there are things that stand out in terms of quotes. There's the fact that Jedi mind tricks sampled uh, when I was a child. My mother told me no, never to look into the sun and one day when I was five or whatever I did, uh, they didn't know if my eyes could ever heal. Yeah, th- like the movie sets such a tone of kind of grim darkness loneliness and obsession and anybody who has got any propensity for sort of cutting off a little bit and getting fixated on something will relate to this character and may relate with this character all the way up until he meets uh, a rather um tricky uh demise at the hands of uh a power tool um yeah th- the movie is is kind of once seen and never forgotten i think and a lot of that is down to the central character maximilian cohen as played here by uh, sean goulet who is an actor that i should know more about and don't i've probably seen him elsewhere but i'm not sure is that do you know anything else that he's done paul no, it's the short answer to that question. Sorry if you were trying to sorry if you were trying to get more out of me there, but no. No, um, no, not at all. I should have the honest answer to that. I have seen Pi for not for many, many years, and yes, an unforgettable film for sure. Definitely one, definitely one that stays with you. You've made me want to rewatch it now, actually, because I haven't seen it probably since it came out. So, oh, okay. The Max Cohen, the actor who played Max Cohen, is actually the shrink in uh, Requiem for a Dream. Obviously, Aronofsky's follow up here a couple uh, of years later. Okay. That's yeah. something I didn't know before I did this. Um, yeah, so that's Max Cohen, my number four from Pi from 1998. What have you got at number three there, Paul? Uh, we did a, We mentioned this briefly earlier before as well, but it's, it's Travis Bickle's got to be on this list somewhere, Robert De Niro's character in the far superior version of um, Joker, Taxi Driver. Um, yeah, if there's ever an um, iconic performance about a man on the edge of his sanity and slowly coming apart at the seams, it, it's got, you've got to think Travis Bickle. 
here. It's just uh, Robert De Niro, an absolutely blistering performance from Robert De Niro. De Niro? Robert De Niro. Um, don't, don't worry, Paul. Earlier on when I wrote the notes for our, our feature review today, I've gone back to look at them as I was talking to you and I called him Rover De Niro, like he okay, turned into a right. dog or something. So yeah, you're, you're not alone. Carry right, on. okay. Um, yeah, just an absolutely blistering film, incredible piece of cinema um, that that still feels as relevant today as it did then. Um, and I watched it again fairly recently, I think, and it was still still absolutely blown away by it. So, yeah, I'm not going to say too much more about Travis Bickle because he would, I imagine, figure on everyone's top five list if they were doing the same kind of thing. So. There we go. That's my number three, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically just being contrarian and like not putting him on my list because yeah. that's the <laughs> yeah. kind of thing I like to do with these. Uh, and, and in the vein of being a contrarian, I'm going to give you my second documentary. Uh, so at number three for me, <laughs> I have gone from a movie uh, for a movie from 2013, uh, a documentary at a scant one hour and 15 minutes by the name of Mistaken for Strangers. Again, one that I've definitely mentioned on the show. This is an absolute doozy of a story. Because uh, what the documentary maker does is tells the story of uh, Matt Berninger, uh, the lead singer of the popular indie rock band The National. But the story isn't about him. It's about his brother. And it's about the way in which his brother is the ultimate outsider. Not only from the band The National, who are massively famous and world-renowned and, you know, very wealthy off the back of that, but also as just an outsider to society at large. He's a guy, uh, when we... meet him for the first time. I think he's somewhere in his early 30s. He's living in his parents' house. Uh, He's struggling to get by. I think he's maybe working part-time. He's not really got anything going on. And he gets given this opportunity by his brother to bring a camera, uh, come along on tour in the United States with uh, the band The National, and to see how everything goes there and to try and get some sort of candid stuff, some backstage stuff, some, you know, all-access stuff to the band that they can then use for their own purposes uh, later down the line. Um, or maybe, if he can see it through, he can complete his own project. Although I don't think uh, Matt Berninger's actually got any confidence that his brother's going to, you know, complete a thing, finish a thing, see a thing through. So it's just crazy that here you've got one brother who is, you know, at sort of world-conquering levels of, of stardom by that point. And then you've got this other brother who's struggling just for people to, like, let him backstage because they don't believe that he has any right to be there. <laughs> um, gloriously, the movie, uh, near the movie's conclusion, uh, Matt Berninger's brother is crowd-surfed uh, from the front to the back of a, of a show. And, and you just kind of, with him, feel, you know, for, for everybody who has ever, not just a brother but like a friend somebody else in society someone you see on Instagram or Twitter or wherever who has what you wish you had and suddenly this guy gets access to that world and is a part of it and maybe sees all of the good there and maybe sees that not everything about being in the spotlight is brilliant and not everything about his brother's life is actually as perfect as it might seem Um, I just think it's a really good documentary that not enough people have seen and so I wanted to include it on the list Mistaken for for Strangers is from 2013. Um, That is my number three. Cool. 
Uh, my number two, um, I'm surprised if this doesn't appear on your list, but we shall see. This is the character of Henry Spencer from David Lynch's masterpiece, Eraserhead, uh, played incredibly well. And I think Eraserhead, Eraserhead got a lot of love, don't get me wrong, but I don't often see enough people talking about Jack Nance's performance um, as Henry in Eraserhead. Um, and just, I've just, I was looking up and I was just like, how can I describe Eraserhead? How would I describe to Eraserhead to someone who hasn't seen it? Uh, and, and I've just basically, I'm going to take the, when I Googled it, this is the, this is the description of Eraserhead that comes up. I love this description, Pete. So it says, Henry, Jack Nance, resides alone in a bleak apartment surrounded by industrial gloom. When he discovers that an earlier fling with Mary X, Charlotte Stewart, left her pregnant, he marries the expectant mother and has to move in with her. And this is the bit that I love the most, Pete. Things take a decidedly strange turn when the couple's baby turns out to be a bizarre lizard-like creature that won't stop wailing. Other characters include a disfigured lady who lives inside a radiator, inhabit the building and add to Henry's troubles. And that is... <laughs> that, <laughs> I just that, that was a very concise description it, uh, of the film Eraserhead. <laughs> that synopsis, I mean, it's just been done to death by now. We get it. I mean, it's such tired tropes of uh, filmmaking. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but talking about the character of Henry, yeah, as you said, he is um, certainly... Um, an outsider of society um, going through some fairly testing times. And it's the Jack Nance, as I said, it's Jack Nance's physicality in the performance and he's, he does an incredible, incredibly bizarre turn in Twin Peaks as well. And I think he's quite an underrated actor, to be fair. And I don't think as much as, you know, it is certainly, it, however much you, you can't argue that Lynch is an auteur and a lot of, a lot of what's said to, a lot of what's the success of Razorhead is down to Lynch. Um, but a lot of it is down to Jack Nance's performance as Henry Spencer as well, and in his hair, um, hence a razor head. Is yeah, it's the film is the film's bonkers, um, and in, it's an absolutely incredible piece of work, and the character of Henry Spencer is great. So that's why he's at number two. Good pick. I've got yeah. I, I've realised as I've been reading these out that I've gone really contemporary with my whole list, which some people are going to sniff at, I would imagine. But I don't care because this is our show. So <laughs> uh, at number two for me is a film that just hit me right in the guts one, about one year ago, I guess it was a 2018 release, uh, and that was Leave No Trace from uh, Deborah Granick, the director, of course, of Winter's Bro Bone, a terrific director, and the character that I'm focusing on here is pay played in the movie by Ben Foster. He's this guy who's raising his daughter totally off the grid. I mean, I know you know this, you've seen this movie, Paul, but yeah. uh, raising a daughter totally off the grid and everything seems to be, from his point of view, kind of idyllic until a small mistake leads to them being essentially pulled against at least his will, but maybe both of their wills into society, whatever that means. Um, something that Ben Foster is... is want to to run away from as quickly as possible and escape not only the trappings of society but the trappings it seems of all of the things in his past his military service his loss his suffering his pain and so on and like when I went to do this list I just remember the line that broke me in this movie and it's when uh T Thomas and Mackenzie is the girl he plays his daughter she um chases after him when he's about to basically the equivalent of marching into the sea like he's going to walk off and leave the settlement that they're in where there are people who are supportive and loving and caring and can help him with all of his difficulties and he's just going to walk away and you know that he's leaving and he's not coming back and his daughter chases after him and you think what this is going to be is a sequence where she says to him dad I can't do without you stay with me help me because she needs him because he's the father in this situation and he should be looking after after his daughter but what she says is way more heartbreaking because she says I know you would stay if you could 
And like, yeah. for a guy to be so outside, uh, not only you know, wider capitalist society, but even a small subset of society living basically a fairly tranquil life in the woods and to be so unable to connect with other people that he's going to go out on his own. And the movie, I think, you know, makes no bones about the fact that this is the, probably the end of this guy. It's the end of him. He's given up. It's 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 that moment when somebody essentially, uh, yeah, just lets go on their grip on on wanting to stay around. Wh- however, you take that in the movie, I just think that it's a fantastic performance from Ben Foster. It's a incredibly well handled movie in terms of the work that Deborah Granick's done, and it really told me or or spoke to me so much about uh, the modern state of things than so many other more sort of pearl-clutching, hand-wringing, alarmist movies have. So, yeah, I think it's a terrific movie, but the the character himself, I don't know if it's an honour that anybody would want, but he is my number two movie outsider, at least in recent memory. That's Ben Foster in Leave No Trace from 2018. What have you got next? Paul, is this number one? This is number one, yes. Wow. This is number one. And this might be influenced by my trip to Paris as to why Psycho's just jumped back into my head. Uh, but this is um, Norman Bates um, from the film Psycho, played incredibly well by Anthony Perkins, um, which is, yeah, I mean, Psycho is one of the great horror films without a shadow of a doubt. Um, it's almost perfectly paced. It's it's terrifying in places, and Anthony Perkins' performance is nothing short of magnificent in this. Campy where he needs to be, charming where he needs to be, um, and terrifyingly a, a terrifyingly convincing villain, I would say, because he is so charming at times that you think you can't. You, there's no possibility that he could be. Um, he could have some fairly terrible psychotic tendencies, shall we say? Um, and certainly, certainly, do not take a shower anywhere near this man. Um, without a shadow of a doubt, Orstein. Orstein is incredibly creepy motel as it happens. So yeah, I just think he it's an it's an absolutely iconic performance. It's an absolutely iconic horror character. Um, and yeah, I, there's not much more to say on on Norman Bates. Really, it's just an incredible performance, an incredible character in a fantastic film. Um, so, so you've not you've not plumped for Vince Vaughn. No, I haven't plumped Vince Vaughn, or <laughs> or in fact Freddie Highmore from the Bates Motel TV series. Like, right. Sad, sadly, so I googled I googled uh, Norman Bates earlier, and the first thing that comes up is Norman Bates, a character played by Freddie Highmore in the TV show Bates yeah, Motel. It's like what what's happened here? What has happened here? And nor Vince Vaughn either, because um, that that was such a weird weird thing to it do. It was very strange. A shot, a shot for shot remake of Psycho. I, I don't understand. With Vince Vaughn is an actor that's growing on me with his recent work, but certainly. He's no Anthony Perkins, shall we say? No, no, absolutely not. And I, funnily enough, Paul, like a week or two ago, I was getting little uh, stings and bits and pieces together for future use in the show. And like one of the movies that I was looking at was uh, the original Psycho and just picking out little yeah audio bits and pieces from some of those key dialogue scenes. And yeah, it just reminded me that I need to go back and watch that movie again because it is yeah. so terrific. Like I, I've seen it, you know, three or four times, I would guess over the years, but I definitely need to revisit it soon because it's been a little while. Uh, trust me, like every, it's every time I watch it it's just it's just always striking as to how good I mean everyone the, all the cast are good in this film but Anthony Perkins is especially creepy in this like especially creepy in places he's just got he just looks so innocent like this yeah they've he's per- perfectly cast um, and yeah one of cinema's greatest villains in Norman Bates yeah yeah I, I, I've I've just had the thought that like coming to the end of this list and number one I guess uh, for me and I think it chimes with some of your selections as well Paul like a thing that I realise as we're talking about outsiders is that 
possibly all of the outsiders on my list are characters that I in some way relate to. And mm. I feel like that's quite important. And I feel like maybe that speaks to the reasons why I didn't totally go for Joker, uh, as you know, you did, you didn't either, uh, with our review today. Because maybe for all of the uh, brooding and all of the darkness, it wasn't totally somebody that I found to be sort of three dimensional and relatable. Anyway, that's all to say that I have a number one. And without further ado, my number one is from 2002. Um, and it is unbelievably possibly play a character played by Adam Sandler. This is, of course, <laughs> the only possible thing I could say next. It is uh, Happy Paul Gilmore. Thompson. Yeah, no. it's, that's right. He's a real outsider, uh, that guy. No, it's uh, Punch Drunk Love from Paul Thomas Anderson from Good 2002, pick. Good pick, as I sir. say. Um, this character has stayed in my head, honestly, without putting anyone on, has stayed in my head since I first saw the film uh, for a number of reasons. But he's such an outsider because he's a guy with, in the movie, what, like five sisters or six mm. sisters? Something like, he seems to have endless numbers of sisters, all of whom give him varying degrees of grief about not only his inability to fit in, but also sort of every aspect of his personality or lack thereof. And he's just trying to make his way and like get from day to day in the fairly soul-sucking, fairly meaningless job that he does. Um, and he then goes along to a party at the behest of his sisters who basically say, you have to go, you pussy, why do you always ruin everything? Uh, get him along to a party where he finds that the one of the guests there is a doctor and he's so desperate to reach out and not, you know, not sort of cave in, implode as a human being that he asks the doctor uh, what he can do about his situation. And the doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. And he says, well, sometimes I don't like myself very much. What can I do about that? And the doctor says to him, well, I'm not that kind of doctor. I think he's like a paediatrician or something like that. He's yeah, he does something yeah. completely unrelated in medicine. He's like, I can't help you with your case. But like at that moment, all you want is for someone to just give the guy a hug and like give him some support and give him the, you know, sessions or whatever that he might need. Um, this has come after he has this sort of epiphany, maybe, or uh, there's the beginnings of an epiphany because he has a small thing go wrong on a date in a restaurant to which he responds by going to the bathroom and smashing absolutely everything. Uh, not because he's just a dick, I don't think, but because he's got all of this rage and all of this pain inside him, like I guess a bunch of people on this list, uh, that he can't get out any other way and he can't express uh, through language, through even gesture with the other people in the world that he knows. And into all of this comes Emily Watson, uh, a possible beacon of hope uh, somebody who might begin to understand him might be able to trade uh, like loving compliments about wanting to smash each other's faces in and bite the flesh from the bone and all that stuff and like get this guy on some level and that for me is one of the like most beautiful sparky little bits of romance I've seen in kind of modern filmmaking because it's about someone broken meeting somebody else who's broken and realizing that you know that they can still make something that that may work out of those fragments. So, yeah, yeah it's, and it's, it's also a reminder of that Adam Sandler can act when he wants to, um, because it's, again, I, yeah. it's, it's a great performance. 
it's a phenomenal performance. Like, it, I, I, you know, I've talked to people on Twitter and stuff about this when people start, you know, just slagging uh, uh, Adam Sandler like all over the place. And I get it. He's made tons of bad movies. He's made loads of movies just for money. He's made loads of comedies that don't have any laughs in them. But here you see this guy is a phenomenal actor when given the right material. The way in which he's able to channel what I would imagine is a reservoir of his own sadness into this character. He's in, is... the, new, he's in the new Safety Brothers film, isn't he? Which looks intriguing. That's right, it's getting, yeah. That's getting really, really good reviews as well. I mean, their previous film was great, so I'd be very surprised if he's not great in that as well. So Yeah, and, and he's been good. I mean, he was good in Funny People, but it's nothing like, it doesn't touch what P.T. Anderson did with him here. And yeah, to be, to be honest, this movie stands out as like, top three P.T. Anderson movies, maybe. I mean, it, what for what it's worth, which is not that much, and that's not the point of this list. The point of this list is uh, he's an outsider that always comes to mind when I think of movie outsiders, and so I had to put him somewhere. And I went for number one um, because, <laughs> you know, he, he's an outsider and sometimes he doesn't like himself very much. Uh, Paul, anything more to say on the countdown? Or, if not, can you just recap what you put from five to one? I can recap what I put from five to one. So at number, sorry, I lent away from the microphone there, which is always professional in a podcast situation. <laughs> uh, the Joker, at uh, number five, Heath Ledger's version or Christopher Nolan's version of the Joker, shall we say, played by Heath Ledger uh, from The Dark Knight, 2008. Uh, also from 2008, there will be Blood. Uh, Daniel Plainview is my character at number four, played incredibly well by Daniel Day-Lewis. Weirdly enough, P.T. Anderson's second mention on this list. Um, Travis Bickle is number three, played by Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, of course, uh, with Henry Spencer being at number two, um, who is the main character from Eraserhead, which is David Lynch's, um, well, first film, I bet, yeah, first film, um, played incredibly well by physical, incredibly great physical performance from Jack Nance. And then at number one, we have Norman Bates from Alfred Hitchcock's version of Psycho, played by Anthony Perkins. Nice, strong list. I had then at number five, the documentary Dreams of a Life, which tells the true story of someone uh, not found after death for three years, despite having uh, seemingly friends all over the city of London. Uh, at number four, I had Maximilian Cohen from Aronofsky's film Pi from 98. At number three, I have Tom Berninger, the brother of Matt Berninger from The National in the documentary Mistaken for Strangers. At number two, I had the character played by Ben Foster in Deborah Granick's film Leave No Trace. And at number one, Adam Sandler, believe it or not, um, in the film Punch Drunk Love from P.T. Anderson. That was a good list, I think, Paul, as much as some of these people that we're talking about are quite sad and or scary. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would agree with that. I think it was a good list. It was a good list. Um, but that's pretty much the end of the show, though. Despite having a good list, at some point the show needs to end. And I think this is about that point, isn't it? It, it probably is. I mean, I'm only <laughs> going to tack on to the end of this. Because it is Mental Health Awareness Day, um, it's a, a token gesture, I suppose, to assign a particular day to such a serious issue, such an ongoing issue. But I just would say that from both of us here, um, I think it's fair to say that we've had our, our fair share of uh, interaction with the world of mental health over the years through friends and family and so forth. And if anybody listening has um, any concern about anybody in their lives that they could reach out to, please do that. If you yourself are feeling 
feeling low or feeling down or feeling like misunderstood or left behind, please get in touch or talk to at least one person because that can make a massive amount of difference. You know, you don't need to wear a yellow ribbon to uh, do something about an epidemic, I think, in our society at this point. And I think, Paul, you'd probably co-sign on that sentiment. I couldn't put it any better than that myself, to be fair. So, yes, uh, and nor shall I try. But yes, and it absolutely. is, Paul, it is not as important, but I would compel people to also reach out and share our podcast uh, <laughs> on all available platforms. Get in touch with us via Twitter at Strangers Cinema and obviously the usual channels, social media wise, um, because, you know, that helps as well. And that helps keep us sane and happy and all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, do anything you can and we'll appreciate it massively. Yes, absolutely. But that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a review of The Day Shall Come. Is it The Day Shall Come? Have I got that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. The Day Shall Come, the latest film from Chris Morris, which I'm very excited about, along with me talking, certainly at least me talking about Gemini Man and how that looks in high frame rate. Uh, But up until then, it's goodbye. Goodbye. Shut up and sit down.